Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Vigard Sherbeck, a population economist and social scientist based at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, He's also a professor at Columbia University and the author of Decline and Prosper, Changing Global Birth Rates and the Advantages of Fewer Children. We discuss how the global population is aging and why that doesn't have to be a disaster. Vigard Sherbeck, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Katie, for inviting me. So last year, 2022, we saw the global population reach eight billion people for the first time. I wonder if you could start by just putting this in historical context and giving us a sense of how this compares to previous eras and, and how recent this sort of population growth is. So last year we saw the global population pass 8 billion people. And this is basically reflecting uh, the latest stages of a very long-term development where the global population has basically increased, particularly in the last two centuries, where before the beginning of the 1800s, we were less than 1 billion people on the planet. So we've seen rapid population growth, particularly in the 20th and now the 21st century, beginning of the 21st century. But we're now seeing a stagnation in and slowing off of population increase. So we are likely to see the world past 9 billions in the late 2030s. But demographers disagree on whether we are likely to see the 10th billion. We might very well see a plateauing at around below 10, 10 billion and thereafter a stagnation or decline in global population size. And how significant are the changes we're seeing in terms of the makeup of that population, in particular, how the global population is aging? Now, the, first of all, the, this increase in which has occurred very differently across world regions. So the first increase was seen in Western countries, first with the rising population growth in following mortality and decline in, in European, North American countries, particularly first. And thereafter, a spread of this of the lower mortality to towards other parts of the world with decreasing mortality rates 
reaching more and more world regions. And in recent years, we've seen much less variation in global life expectancy. So there used to be huge variation if you go 70 years back in, in the expected number of years of life lived in across world regions. But in, in recent years, those differences have become much lower, much less pronounced. Global variation has become more than half if you look at, if you compare with world regions. And, and there's also changed that the main population growth is now occurring in, in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia in particular, and also some other parts of the world, including parts of West Asia, parts of South America. So it's been changed in the regional composition as well. But importantly, the world is aging. There's also demographic aging occurring, and that is primarily driven by the fact that we live longer and longer, that we have lower, lower death rates, which increases the likelihood that we'll reach older ages. In some countries in particular, this seems to be particularly extreme or at least happening particularly rapidly. I'm thinking of last month, the Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio warning that his country was simply on the brink of no longer being able to maintain its societal functions. What are the issues in terms of a population that is aging, but in which birth rates are also declining? So there's, first of all, this is not a sudden change, although one might seem to think that this is something that unexpectedly came into came about uh, just in recent years. This is the increase in life expectancy has been going on for more than one century. And we basically had a lot of time to prepare. We had a lot of time to alter our institutions, our systems, our, our state of mind for how to how to change our economic and social systems, for example, to to be sustainable and supportive of, of every new demographic reality where all for the much larger share of the population will be at older age groups. And this is what Statements from, for example, Japan, those kind of statements have been issued before and will be continued to be made for more and more countries, I believe, when they now observe the later stages of this, this demographic change. But I think it's, first of all, <laughs> important to stress that this is an inevitable change. All countries on the planet will age. There is no single nation on the planet which is not undergoing demographic aging in the longer term. We will all grow older and we will not grow older indefinitely. There, there is a certain point in time where we are likely to not see so much more rapid population aging. But the big question is how well do we age and how long can we maintain our productive capacities, our health, our, our opportunities to be socially engaged and active citizens. And that is perhaps more where we should put the policy the debate, I think. If you look at a country such as Japan, Yes, it is the, certainly the major economic power that is undergoing most rapid demographic aging, with one of the highest life expectancy in the world and fairly low fertility. But at the same time, you also have many other opportunities in order to deal with demographic aging, which, which are untapped. For example, you have fairly low female labor force participation. And this is something that could have been altered a long time ago. One could have changed the cultural, normative, institutional settings to, to allow and encourage and incentivize women to work to a greater extent, which would have made it much easier to cope with the with demographic change. Some of this is being driven by positive factors that we're living longer. Our life expectancy is getting longer and women have greater opportunities to participate in the workforce. But it sounds like you're saying the issue is not only that our populations are getting older, but that we're not doing enough to make sure that people are able to stay healthy and to stay active older and to ensure that more of the population, like women, are able to work. Yeah, that is precisely what one should do. One should, first of all, this is something that most countries are not able to do well. There, many years ago, a, a colleague of mine at Columbia wrote a book on successful aging and where the argument was that one should try to encourage people to stay healthy 
it will be physically and socially cognitively active until all ages. But the reality back then in the 1980s and the reality also today is that most do not are not able or at least not following this advice. There's And the same can be said for nations. We also know that there's huge differences in health, in functional capacities across nations in terms of how well they cope, at what age they have a certain level of poor health. And this, this stage, the age which everyone has a given level of poor health, differs tremendously between different countries. And for some countries, it happens fairly late in life. And in, for other countries, it happens fairly early. We had a recent study in uh, Lancet Longevity where we found that it differs by, by up to 30 years across countries. So in some countries, you're old in your 40s, if you like. And in other countries, you have the same health in your mid-late 70s. So there's tremendous variation in how well countries age in terms of how well they are able to uphold their health and how much they invest in health, how much they invest in the drivers of health, such as education or healthcare provision. And this is not just an issue for what we think of as rich countries, is it? I, the, one of the statistics I saw was that by 2050, 80%, 80% of older people will be living in low and middle income countries. And this is already since the 1980s. You had the clear majorities in older age groups, so that is the finest levels in the 60s and above who are living in what you and defines as lower income countries. And I think the, that is also an important issue that is, is certainly not an average country phenomenon, partly because you have many, but not all richer countries where you have fairly good health at all ages. There's still much to, you have still a lot to learn and, and you can still make changes to improve health to a considerable degree. But I would say the even greater challenges, challenges are found in many poorer countries. We have poor health occurring at a much, much younger age. Populations are rapidly, very rapidly aging in many nations because the increase in life expectancy seen in some of these countries are is being experienced in just a fraction of the time that, for example, Western countries have experienced the growth in life expectancy from the pre-demographic transition setting where it was perhaps around the 30s, 40s to one where it reaches the 70s, 80s. In they have experienced this development in a matter of maybe four or five decades when it took more than a century in, in many Western countries. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. And if we look at the other end of this, then the declining birth rates, there are specific factors clearly in, in each country, but are there common factors that you see in terms of why people are having fewer children or deciding not to have them at all? And what should we understand about the key shifts that are occurring in family size, the number of children people have? I think there are common factors, which are quite has a strong causal effect on both the timing of the onset of childbearing, birth spacing, how many children you end up having. And key among them would be decline in the decline in mortality, that you can expect more children to survive taller ages, more children are likely to grow up, so you don't have to have more children than you actually expect to see throughout the older ages. And, and there's also patterns related to education, educational attainment, compulsory schooling has been shown to lead to a later onset of childbearing and also lower fertility outcomes. Moreover, there's been changes in contraceptive access, contraceptive use, new types of contraceptives, such as new hormonal type of contraceptives require, requiring much less maintenance and implying that there's fewer unplanned pregnancies, which is important because the children you're likely to have are more likely to be planned. And there's also changes in perceived or actual compatibility between having many children and having, having a career, pursuing higher education, establishing yourself on the labor market establishing a career, reaching a point in your career where you are satisfied with what you have achieved and would like to move on to for a family. And this all implies that you're likely to try to have children relatively late in life and probably have few children that you otherwise would. And there's ample evidence that this, many of these mechanisms are working in, are in many different parts of the world, not only in, in say, Western countries. Yeah, I can certainly identify with that as somebody who was classed a geriatric mother during my own pregnancy. I think anyone over 35, that's the lovely term. But how much of an issue is it that women like me are not starting families until they're much older than I think my own mother was 30 when she had me and that was considered relatively late in terms of her peers. Is that an issue in the decline that we're seeing in birth rates? Well, first of all, I should say that it's important that young people, young adults are well informed about, about the reproductive choices and how they organize their lives and that you cannot postpone it definitely. But if, if you would like to have a family, you should consider when 
you would like to start and postponing the onset of childbearing or trying to have children at too late ages certainly might increase the risk of not being able to conceive. So there is, there's also widespread misconceptions about the effectiveness of assisted reproductive technologies, which are often unsuccessful in terms of enabling younger individuals or all mid, midlife individuals to have, to have children, basically, because many try too late ages and they have perhaps too optimistic view of how effective, for example, ART technologies can be in terms of helping. But with that said, I think it's that the change we're seeing in terms of postponement and declines in fertility are outcomes of highly positive social developments such as improvement in the autonomy of women, certainly improved health, declines in mortality, better education, longer education, and career opportunities, alternative opportunities. Because more opportunities to realize oneself in other spheres of life, including, for example, leisure activities or following, trying out different aims in life, which would possibly not be an opportunity at earlier stages because one would not have be able to do that. It wasn't basically to because of economic reasons or because of other types of restrictions. And now one has many more options. One can try to find a partner one wants. One, one is not a marriage, has become less for it's no longer compulsory if you'd like. Yeah, one, one can marry if one finds the right partner. Many prefer to do so still. Most prefer to have a partner before they have children, but it's not a necessity. One can also choose if one so likes to not to have, to have children. And, or perhaps if one doesn't realize the the prerequisites if it, in terms of, for example, having achieved other life aims, such as uh, our education, travels, and finding the right partner, having enough money, and so forth, one, one might end up having fewer children than one otherwise would like to. Many of these developments are positive, but it's also important to see that there, there is a trade-off, which many people are perhaps not sufficiently aware of. And for some, it, it could be highly negative not to be able to realize their fertility ideals. So that is a concern for sure, but it's also largely reflecting positive social developments, the decline and postponement of childbearing. When you look at the kind of measures that we see, I'm thinking particularly of in Japan and South Korea, where there are attempts to really incentivize people to, to have more children and there are financial incentives available. The government is offering help towards childcare, but it really doesn't seem to be shifting birth rates. Right. Do you feel that these are, they feel almost like band-aid measures, like very after the event measures to tackle what is really a structural issue in terms of women feeling that they have to choose between career and motherhood and real root economic anxieties, like being able to afford a home? That last thing you said is precisely a big issue that there is, uh, you introduce policies. Many of these, I've been involved in policy debates for many years and I also been advising on fertility policies to governments in different countries. And I think the, um, many of the policies that have been introduced have been basically aimed at supporting mothers and fathers during maternity and paternity leave, giving cash payments, giving various type of leave support, and also subsidizing, for example, kindergartens and so forth. But many of the prerequisites for having children could be, uh, th these type of policies might be very small compared to what the implications would be of having it's so much more expensive to, for example, buy a house, which you would need a big house if you have kids. And uh, the order of magnitude in terms of how expensive this is, uh, is just so much greater in terms of than what the kind of economic policies most governments uh, still are actually implementing and uh, supporting. So there's a mismatch because between how much uh, having children actually costs and how much money governments are willing to spend at the present for young adults to have children. In part, policies tend to be too weak to be effective. I think you have to address housing policies. You would really like to do so. And it's, that's a highly sensitive political issue, and it's also 
not certain that politicians are willing to go so far. And also, there are many other issues that could relate to the decline in childbearing. And many politicians are not probably seeing this or internalizing that this is not something that could easily be fixed through economic measures because there's been these norms, there's been changes in the preference for having, for example, larger families. There's in many countries, there's been a decline in, in families with the three plus children. For those who have children, they're likely to have smaller families than they used to. There's also a change in the norms of when is the appropriate ages of childbearing, where, for instance, in many countries, it used to be the mid twenties and now it's the early thirties or even mid thirties. In some cases, even late thirties, which have become the norms in some communities and social groups. So it's not easily fixed through some relatively modest economic policies. Your book is called Decline and Prosper. Is there also an argument that there are positives from this, particularly in terms of our environmental impact? What's the case for why this doesn't have to be a terrible thing? So there is clearly there are the changes in the population structure, changes in fertility rates will have a huge number of consequences. And some of them are can be challenging, including the, for example, the potential need for higher retirement ages, need for, for in some cases, higher taxation. But there could also be many positives. And chief among them is likely to be the, the capacity to cope with environmental challenges. And um, a larger population is in typically related to greater greenhouse gas emissions and a high risk of dangerous climate change. So that is one one key aspect, which is often not sufficiently appreciated and which is an important outcome of the demographic changes that we do see and which will get more likely that we're able to cope with the environmental change challenges we are facing. So remember, global fertility rates are changing rapidly and more rapidly than most demographers predicted, at least in many parts of the world. This is something that will have tremendous implications, for example, how much nations consume and how much they will produce. But there will also be other implications which could be of importance. For example, there will be less pressures on the housing markets in many major cities, which could make it easier for younger people and other non-house owners to establish themselves. It can make it more, you might have less congestion, you might have less uh, basically pressure on, on certain types of services, which because there's basically few people around. Final question, which you just listening to you talk there, I wonder, is there a parallel with thinking about the climate crisis in terms of this seeming to, to some people to just be such a huge issue and so insurmountable, so difficult to tackle, that can make it very difficult to take concrete action? So I think in the climate research, there's been a change over time from climate change mitigation attempts that you should try to avoid climate change as far as possible to to more and more climate change adaptation, where you should try to adapt societies, the way we live, the way we organize ourselves to better cope with it. And I think the same certainly holds true for this inevitable population change. We should try to adapt as good as possible. And this is a development which is highly foreseen. This is not something that happened overnight, but something we, we can foresee and we should and we should and we could learn from the climate change debate in terms of how to deal with it. And ultimately, I, it is a question about how Yes, population growth will stagnate, fertility rates will go down, populations will grow older, but they are have grown older all over the world. There are no, if you account for health, there is much less variation in the dependency ratios across countries because countries with younger demographic populations tend to have poor health much earlier. And if you account for that, you find that the dependency ratios are quite similar across world regions. The question is not so much whether we will age, but how well we will age and whether we will cope with it in a way that is, is good for both, both the environment and for people, basically. On that relatively optimistic note, let me say, Vigard Sherbach, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. 
This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.